Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 30, verse 22 to 24. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Um, before I begin, I just wanted to say that going to, uh, we're going to continue our road to independence. We started off with our Bible study, and that's going to come to a close, and then we're going to continue on. Is this pack weird? With 40 days of prayer. And the 40 days of prayer actually begins on November 29th. Um, the inspiration comes from when Christians first started to gather, they prayed. And when they prayed, they prayed constantly. And they prayed together. And when they couldn't pray together, they would pray at certain times of the day. And the early church, they prayed up to six times. They set six different times to pray in the day. Um, eventually, that started to taper off, obviously, because none of us here have set times where we set an alarm and pray. And another religion took over, and they pray five times a day. Uh, and, you know, it just reminds me that they're just not as good because we're six and they're five. But all joking aside, that was kind of the inspiration for us to, you know, pray. We will have times to gather when we pray together. But we will also uh, set times during the day where you can just set an alarm and say, oh, we're going to pray for this for our church during the day. And I'm very excited. You know, just imagine. I can only, and that's the thing that gives me goosebumps. Imagine as a church, when we gather, you know, it's not just about, and I love affinity. Don't get me wrong. And that's why we have affinity groups. By the way, affinity just means you have something in, in common. And so if you're a family affinity group, then, then um, it's because you have this life stage in common. Uh, if you're young adults, then you have this in common. And if you're older singles, then you have this in common. And that's just something that holds you together, which is this line of affinity. But there's something even bigger than that that God calls us to. He calls us to a community. And that goes far beyond the affinity that we naturally adhere to and magnetize to. And then you can just imagine, imagine all of us. You can think about it. If we set a time for 8 a.m., you know, like we're all praying for this one thing together. And even if we're not connected physically and you can't see my face or hear my voice, we know that we are praying for one thing, and that's for God to move. That's what's exciting. And so before we go into any kind of claim that we're independent and now we're all grown up, um, you know, let's, let's start with the attitude of humility, saying, God, we don't, ha we don't know it all. We don't, we, don't, we don't have it all, and we need to rely on you. And so this is uh, a part of our road to independence, to start with prayer. And I want you to prepare your hearts and your spirits for that. November 29th on Tuesday, we're going to start praying together as a church. If you haven't come to our studies, uh, come. This is, this is, the next week is going to be the last week 
of the study portion the following week after we're going to debrief. But even if you just hit it for one comment, it's really good. God has been really blessing us in our studies. And a lot of people already show up, but you know what? There's still room for more. So if you want to come Wednesday at 8 o'clock right down this hall, um, there is a chapel, and we meet at that chapel. And um, just another reminder, December 11th, uh, put it in your calendars at 5 o'clock. We're going to be installing and ordaining our elder elects and deacon elects. We've been praying for them for a very long time. And finally, we see this culmination. God has been really gracious to us as a church. Uh, who can even imagine that some 30-something-year-olds become elders of a church. And I was, I was sharing this with the elder elect, so this is not a surprise to them. You know, people wait and serve the church with the desire to serve him at a greater capacity, in a, in, a, in a position where they can really use the talents and the call that God has given them. And they wait till they're 50 or 60. And yet God has given us this unique opportunity, especially to these two people in their 30s. This may not happen again, who knows? But this is something that God has set up and I see this as an incredible move of God that even our parent church, our mother church would bless us in. You know, people are surprised. I spoke at a, a revival for the last two nights and I was worried that I might lose my voice but praise God, I still have it. And when I share about a little bit about our church. So I said, oh, how's your church doing? And I said, oh, you know, we're praying that we remain humble through this process of going independent. They're surprised. And they're like, wow. So, you know, what's your relationship going to be like with the KM? And I said, what do you mean? They're, they're supporting us. And they're even more surprised. Once you get it, we are in an incredibly blessed seat. This is something that we need to praise God for. This Thanksgiving Sunday, I hope and pray that we can remember this, that God brought us here. You know, Michael, God brought you all the way here through his faithfulness, and that he's showing you that no matter where you go, he's going to be with you. To thick and thin, he's not going to let you go, and he's not going to let our church go. You know, what an amazing God we serve. Looking back, 2016, can we... Be thankful people. Does it show in our words and actions? More significantly, is it in our thoughts? You know, as people call to humility, we admit we don't have all the answers. But it doesn't mean that we don't have some. And it most certainly doesn't mean we don't have the answer. So how can you tell if you're humble or not? Well, I would ask this. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to empathize? Are you willing to listen? Instead of listening to throw out a rebuttal, are you willing to hear what's going on in the person's heart when you have a conversation or dialogue? It doesn't matter who they voted for. Are you willing to listen what's going on in their heart and are you willing to empathize? Instead of bitterness, rage, outrage, are you willing to risk even getting hurt in the process? You know, that's what it means to be humble. 
Uh, this election process has taken a great toll on my physical, emotional, and spiritual body, as many of you. And um, I remember when, uh, when this all first started, and I, I told, uh, not, that, not, not that I'm saying I'm prophetic or anything like that, I told my pastor friends, you know, we should prepare our congregation for a Trump presidency. And they were all like, what, are you kidding me? He's not even gonna make it through the primaries. And I said, maybe, but maybe not, you know. <clears throat> and then when I met him again, I, I just wanted to say I told you so, but uh, I decided not to. Um, it's not something that I would, you know. Uh, for minorities, it's a, it's a little bit different. For most of us, uh, it's a little different uh, than what we see. Um, I grew up in an environment. I, I went back to my hometown and preached. So it was, it was very nostalgic. I remembered what I went through. Uh, growing up in Queens, Elmhurst, uh, went through Jackson Heights, Woodhaven. We would play. The racism, very, it's just very obvious. It's out there in your face. Uh, I would say words now that would just be very offensive, but it's just what I grew up with. I'd be walking down the street and someone would just yell out chink. And you have to decide right then and there, what do I do? Do I chase that person down? <laughs> this is when I was young, right? Before I knew, before I was a pastor. Do, do I chase them down or do I forget about it? And I got to tell you the truth. I, it was about half and half. Um, and sometimes a parent would be with their child. And the child would yell out a racial slur. And then we would look at the parents like, what are you doing? And the parent would just be like, whatever. So I, I kind of grew up in that environment. Um, and I almost became, I would think, desensitized. Um, I never thought if you weren't a minority. And, and believe me, uh, the more I studied history, the more I realized as an Asian American, we got nothing on what black Americans went through. And I completely, uh, you know, I, I, my heart was broken to, to hear the stories that they went through and to see all this happening. And on the forefront of what we see in the media is uh, our president-elect is against these races, whether that's completely true or not to a certain degree. Um, that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about that there is um, racial divide. And I grew up just thinking this is what it is. I went on missions, and even when I went to Egypt, um, I was with a primarily, well, they were, they were all Caucasian, they were white. My leader was from Texas. And we would go to these underground churches. This is very exciting, because you can't really worship in public spaces unless it's approved by the government. And one time I went to an Orthodox church, and then we had to get escorted out by the police because um, there was some information out there that they might harm us as Christian visitors. So that was kind of exciting, but the underground churches by far were the most exciting. You see these people, these Egyptians gather because they're so passionate about worshiping Jesus that they would take this risk and build a church under someone's house. They would go to someone's basement and they would just worship God. And I remember being in one of these services and then afterwards the, the leader would go out and he would say, we're so happy to be here and join you in service and worship. Um, 
And if you, we would love to talk to you. We would love to talk to you. Uh, we would love to get to know you. Please come talk to us. If you don't know who we are, we're the white people. And that got a laugh. And I just threw up my hands. I was like, bro. And then he came to me and he just tapped me on the shoulder. He said, don't worry. You, you're basically white. And then I went, bro. You know? So um, I'm sure he meant it uh, as a compliment. But that's what I, that's what I realized. A compliment to a lot of people was, you're basically white, bro. And I'd be like, bro, <laughs> look at me. No, I'm not. Uh, and, um, you, know, you know, you read about uh, the apartheid in South Africa. And history shows us that there were two races. There were white and colored. And that's why Nelson Mandela had such an incredible role in uh, destroying this, but there were just two races, white and colored. And then when Japanese investors came, they were offended because they didn't want to be called colored. So when they protested, uh, the government said, oh, right. So they made a third race. It was called the honorary whites. You know, this is the kind of culture that a lot of us grew up in and almost we've become desensitized. And I gotta say that this election isn't anything new for me. It rather, I feel like it emboldens some. That's what you see in the media. It emboldens some people, but it's not new. It's not like all of a sudden someone becomes president. You're like, you know what? I'm going to be racist from now on. It just doesn't, it does, that's not how it works. And so perhaps it emboldens some, but it's always been there. Um, the question that, and the point that I really want to get into is, as a church, we've seen the vote split. And a lot of us are dismayed that the church would vote one way or another. And if you are, you may have heard the statistic that if you are a white evangelical, then 80% or 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, and as a minority evangelical, you might feel a little betrayed. Um, but I wanted to encourage you. Uh, not everybody voted for Trump because they liked uh, or they were racist. Uh, I met after, after and I, I shared this with uh, our Bible study. That's why it's really good. I share a lot of stories in Bible study, but um, I shared this in our Bible study. I, after the election, I walked out and my landlord is a, an Irish uh, Catholic. And um, I went out and I said, hello, hello. I just wanted to strike up a conversation. And I said, you know, crazy election, huh? And then he looked at me kind of very sympathetic. And he just said, yeah. And then he just said, well, there are two crooks and one crook won. And so he was trying to be very sympathetic to me looking at me. And so when I sympathized back to him, we were able to have a conversation. And he would tell me that, you know, his insurance premiums used to be two, $300. But under Obamacare, it went up to six. And some of his friends hit $900. And they didn't know what to do. And so they, didn't, they couldn't vote again to this way. And so that's all they could think of. Whether you agree with it or not, is not what I'm trying to purport here. What I am saying is that when you start listening to people, 
they have their reasoning, and not, it's, not, it's not always about hate like we think. Um, he didn't come out and be like, uh, Trump won, now you're a chink. And he didn't say that, you know? Uh, he was able, we were able to sympathize. And so not everybody is like that. So the question is, what about the church? What about the evangelical church do we have to see here? And I want to lay this as a background um, and a foundation as we get into the word. And there is a, um, I guess, someone that hates the evangelical church in politics. You may have kind of had this feeling like um, politics don't, doesn't belong in the church. The church should just talk about Jesus, so politics is out of it. I personally think that's ridiculous. I think Jesus covers every area of our lives, and that includes politics. Politics isn't everything, but it's a portion. So if we exclude politics from our church because of fear of whatever, if we endorse somebody, we might lose our 501c3, then we're not moving in love, we're moving in fear. And so whatever God's spirit leads us to do, we should be able to do that boldly, am I right? So... But there is someone that really hates the evangelical church being part of the political process. Um, and he wrote a book called Under God. Under God, right? To be sarcastic. But uh, his name is Gary Wills. Um, and he talks about evangelical engagement in politics. And this is what he wrote in his book. The problem with evangelical religion is not so much that it encroaches on politics. You know, listen. The problem with evangelical excuse me, is not so much that it encroaches on politics, but that it has so carelessly neglected its own sources of wisdom. It cannot contribute what it no longer possesses. And now that, that, that hit pretty deep. This is way before this whole election process. This is what this person was saying. The problem with evangelical religion is not so much that it encroaches on politics, but that it has so carelessly neglected its own sources of wisdom. It cannot contribute what it no longer possesses. How can we champion someone that goes completely against the ethics and morals of the Bible? How can we champion anybody then? So that's the question. I am not saying if, if, you, were, if you were a believer or a voter of either or, saying, oh, this person must like this person. Oh, this person is that person. That's not what I'm saying. As a Christian, we have someone higher than the president that we listen to, that we follow. And this case is especially shown when David would sin. He took another man's wife, slept with her, and then he killed her husband in war. That's an incredible, incredible sin. That's adultery, you guys. That's one of the, that's the Ten Commandments. Don't do these ten things. God says it right there. It's so easy that you have ten fingers. Each finger, you can memorize the Ten Commandments. And yet he broke one of his fingers. That's what it means. King David committed adultery. But he wasn't above God. He's not above the law. God's law. So who came to him? Nathan came to him. Nathan came to him and he rebuked him. We have a pastor who went up to our president-elect and said, these things that you did are reprehensible. These things the Christian church cannot approve of and you need to repent and turn away from. Why is that a bad thing to say now? Why is it that you can't say that when it is completely against what the Bible teaches us? And so if this person repents and comes back, that's one thing. 
But this is what Donald Trump tweeted. He tweeted Russell Moore. This is the pastor that I really admire. But Russell Moore is truly a terrible representative of evangelicals and all the good that they stand for. A nasty guy with no heart. That's what he tweeted. And so CNN got a hold of Russell, Pastor Russell Moore. And Pastor Russell Moore, they asked him, uh, you know, Donald Trump just called you a nasty guy. What do you think? And then on CNN, uh, this is not a Christian network. It's not the Christian News Network, right? Um, it's not the Clinton News Network for those guys that think it's the Clinton News Network. It's not. Um, on CNN, he goes, well, I agree. I agree with Donald Trump. I am a nasty guy. In fact, I'm worse than a nasty guy. I'm depraved. And that's why I need a savior. That's why we believe in Jesus Christ. And he was able to say and preach the gospel on TV. And this is what uh, Russell Moore wrote post-election. He is a white evangelical who sympathizes with the racial and ethnic divisions of this country, saying, as a church, we need to be sympathetic and empathize. And this is what he wrote. No matter what the racial and ethnic divisions in America, we can be churches that demonstrate and embody the reconciliation of the kingdom of God. After all, we are not just part of a coalition, but part of a body. A body that is white and black and Latino and Asian, male and female, rich and poor. We are part of a body joined to the head, who is an Aramaic-speaking Middle Easterner. What affects black and Hispanic and Asian Christians ought to affect white Christians. And the sorts of poverty and social unraveling among the white working class ought to affect black and Hispanic and Asian Christians. We belong to each other because we belong to Christ. And this is what he wrote on his webpage. Um, not everybody thinks, um, you know, in the way that a lot of us fear. Uh, Michael Bird, he also says this in his uh, blog, more is not the odd man out. Many evangelicals, especially those associated with multi-ethnic churches, feel the same way. I think that if we continue to go on this path that everybody's against us or the other path, um, let's just become desensitized. Those are two extreme paths that are not healthy. And that's why I want to remind us as fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, we are called to number one, listen. Listen to other people. And number two, empathize. Empathize. Can you empathize with someone who voted the other way? Can you listen to them? And as followers of Jesus, you must. I had um, our elder-elect Jubin come and read this passage. And this passage is uh, the middle of something. And, and, I've, and I've shared this before, and if you're new, this will be the first time you might hear it from me, but... A lot of times the Bible has a burger. And when you see a burger, it's important to take notice. And what Jubin read was just meat. Just the meat. Well, it's yummy. It's tasty. But it's, uh, there's something on top and there's something on bottom. And that's why this burger makes a burger complete. You can't just eat meat. Um, some of you might, but that's gross. Uh, you need the bun so that your hands don't get dirty. That kind of thing. Uh, and so this chapter is a burger. There's something before it and there's something after it, and there's the meat. 
And so what we read today was the meat. Uh, so I want to kind of go through it. There is obvious envy and there is obvious competition between two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Um, and this, here's a story. Um, Rachel apparently, and this is how, and we talked about how dysfunctional this family is, but let's go to this extreme. Rachel apparently got to decide who uh, Jacob slept with that night. <laughs> so she decided. So one day, Reuben, the firstborn of Leah, comes in saying, I got some mandrakes. If you don't know what a mandrake is, it's a flower that's supposed to enhance. It's, it's like an aphrodisiac. And in fact, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, the Greek goddess of fertility, uh, one of her other names, not, Af- not just Aphrodite, Aphrodite um, one of her other names was the lady of the mandrake. So people use this as an aphrodisiac. Um, people use things, a lot of things for fertility and, you know, people worship sex all the time. Uh, we don't have mandrake now, but today's mandrake, I suppose, would be Viagra or something like that, right? And they had that. Um, so Reuben brings mandrakes, and Leah makes this uh, deal because Rachel wants the mandrake. She wants to get pregnant. Uh, there's one thing that happened is Leah had all the sons and the babies and Rachel had all the love. But Leah really wanted love and Rachel really wanted the babies. And so you see this competition ensue within this family. And um, she says, okay, fine. I will take, you. Uh, give me the mandrakes and you can sleep with Jacob. And so... You know, and through all this, Jacob's just like, oh, whatever, right? And then so he's just, in between, he's just um, not taking a strong stance on anything. But uh, so they switch. And Leah goes, today, I bought you. You're mine. I get to sleep with you. The interesting part is, in this Hebrew text, the sleep is not like something where you would do out of love, like when Adam knew Eve. But the, the Hebrew word for sleep was always when something was either forced or something was illicitly just wrong. And so this is the kind of sleep that is used in the Bible. And the ironic thing is, the person that wanted fertility uh, with the mandrakes, Rachel still doesn't have any kids. For three years, she doesn't have kids, at least three years. But, uh, but Leah, who wants love, still doesn't get it, but keeps on getting kids, right? And so she even bore uh, Jacob a daughter, the only daughter that we know of that's written here, Dinah. And she's going to come out later in the later chapters. But, and so it doesn't happen. And that's the first bun. And the second, the bottom bun is this. Um, as soon as Joseph was born, Jacob was like, I'm out. I got to get out. And here we have his uncle, and I hope you guys all remember, the relationship between uncle and nephew and now father-in-law was not family. It was more like a slave and slave owner. And so Laban always had the better of Jacob. As long as Jacob was under Laban, he was treated like a slave. He worked for him and made Laban rich. Laban knew, he knew that it was because God was with him. 
But if you look at this conversation, it's incredibly comical because Laban won't admit it. He'll just say, I learned by divination that God is with you. So he's like saying it in a, in a roundabout way. And Jacob also goes, uh, yeah, how about you give me my wages and I'll just take the spotted ones. And so you see this uh, deceiving at play. They're both trying to deceive each other. They're trying to come out on top. So on the top, you see the two wives trying to come out on top. On the bottom, you see the two guys trying to come out on top. And they're all deceiving each other. And this is the family dynamic at work. Um, eventually, uh, Jacob does take like branches and rips it open. The whites kind of make the, like, the goats or the sheep spotted. And he comes out with healthy where the Laban doesn't. So we see this kind of interaction and the results take place. But here I want to kind of focus on the middle. This is the burger. And this is what Elder Elect Juven read. Then God remembered Rachel. First of all, what did Rachel do? What did she do? Did she pray to God? Is there anywhere in the Bible where she relied? You know what? I'm, I'm, out of, I'm out of sticks, I'm out of ideas, I'm out of anything. You know what, let's go to God. I, I don't see that. But here it says, but God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. She conceived and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. And she named him Joseph. This is a play on words in the Hebrew. And um, disgrace, or God has taken away, uh, the word that's used to taken away isn't literally taken away. Like when he gives and takes away in Job, that's not the word. The word taken away is more like gathered, gathered. And so it's asaf. Asaf is the word gathered, but I want you to hear the play on words. Joseph is Yosef, Asaf, Yosef, and Ad is Esef. So you see this play on words, and it may be prophetic because later on we'll see that Joseph is actually Asaf. So Yosef is actually Asaf, and she does get an Esef, an Ad, which is Benjamin. So she may be prophetic and not even know it, but this is what happens. This is the burger. But my point is, what did Rachel do? Rachel did nothing. What did Rachel do? Rachel did nothing to deserve this. And this is what we call grace. Rachel received grace. You know, looking at all these characters, the question again is, why is there no protagonist still? Why is still there no hero? Because it's given to us in the burger, the actual meat part. It's God who incorporates all the most fallible, the most fallen humans, and he puts them into his, he gathers them into his gracious plan. Brueggemann states that Two competitive sisters, a husband caught between them and an exploit, exploitive father-in-law are not the most likely data for a narrative of faith. And that's because our methods aren't perfect. Jacob's methods weren't perfect, and you can knock him for that, sure. 
But the point isn't Jacob's method. The point is God sees us through. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my dad used to tell me these things, and I, I, would, I would say, uh, if, you, if you knew me for a long time, sometimes I'll give you the little tidbits that my dad would say. And it wasn't because it was absolute truth, and you had to take it, and you had to think about it, and he would never give me a straight answer, which infuriated me, but now, as an older person, I love him so much for it. <laughs> it's, it's like one of those things, so... I would ask him, Dad, do Catholics go to heaven? And then he would just respond, if they believe in Jesus. And I would be like, what is that? That's like nothing. Um, and one day I said, what, who gives you the hardest time in church? And he responded, three occupations. The teacher, uh, the police officer, and the lawyer. Who gives pastors the hardest time? The teacher, the police officer, and the lawyer. It's like, what? I don't think we have any lawyers in our church. What's going on, Dad? Why are you saying this? And in fact, um, if I were to take that literally here, I knew that would be false because I know lawyers and teachers and police officers here and absolutely love you guys. I absolutely do. But what does that mean? Um, and when I met uh, my, my friend who became a police officer, he said he's now been trained. And as soon as he walks into any kind of place, all he could do is he sees and scans the place. Like you can walk into a Dunkin' Donuts because we met at a Dunkin' Donuts. He would scan the place and he would just see violations. I can cite this person for at least seven tickets. When he pulls someone over, he tells me, I can give this person like 20 tickets, but I'm going to give him one. And I'm shocked that this person is yelling and cursing at me for giving him a ticket. And then we like, I could give you like 20 tickets. I'm just giving you one. This is how he thinks. And so then teachers... Uh, I think it's changing, but when we grade tests, we don't celebrate what's right. Not, 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 at least not, that's how I grew up. There was a red pen for a reason. When I grew up, the red pen was to mark what was wrong, and you need to spot what's wrong. Um, and lawyers, it's always to argue your own side, right? You have to win the case, so you argue your own side. And so who gives people the hardest time it's people who can't empathize, but it's people who don't know grace. Even if you're a lawyer, even if you're a teacher, even if you're a police officer, God is showing us that you need to know grace. Why? Because he gave us grace. <clears throat> his grace, you have to get this, his grace is greater than our sins. His grace is greater than our sins. And his purposes will not be thwarted by our sins. His grace is greater than our sins. And his purposes, his purposes will not be thwarted by them. That's how powerful God's grace is. Even if we see imperfect people, we see God's grace at work in this passage. And my last point is hope. You know what? These people have half-lives, marred by sorrow, hostility, competition. Leah has children, but she has no love from her husband. Rachel has love from her husband, but she has no children. Eugene Roop wrote this, to, to those caught in half a life, the Bible offers not reproach or platitudes, but God's remembering. To those longing for love or stagnated by a sterile world, the faith offers not blame or jargon, 
but one who has come that we might have full life. Some folks, maybe all, will find themselves living in a situation which blocks them from reaching the fullness of life. They know the anguish of Leah and the hostility of Rachel. Ministry, like the Bible, takes the agony utterly seriously, even while offering a word of hope. Because in the end, what is this quarreling about? What are we fighting about? Why are we so angry? Why are we so despondent? Why do we feel so desperate? Because it's about the future. If you look at the first uh, bun and the bottom bun, what is the quarreling about? It's about the future. It's a battle for the future. And we want to do it and we want to take it into our own hands. We want to be able to control it. But the more we live, the more we see that the the battle is more impossible than possible to win. No errors, no love, wrong colored sheep. No one can have their own future. And ironically enough, it was Laban who was tricked by white uh, specks. Laban means white. (laughs) And so he was was finally tricked. Um, But no one has their future, not Laban. Not the barren wives in more than one way, not even Jacob. The same battle is presented before us. It seems more uphill than down, more hopeless than hopeful, more impossible than possible. Our story may seem like this because we are witnessing the continuing collapse of confidence in our government, the constant competition between two wives or political parties, of getting and they're only getting more and more extreme. We're becoming less and less humane when we deal with one another, especially those on the other side. You know, if we were left with just this story, with just this story, it would be an uneasy mixture of hope, but also dread. But I want to remind you, the story doesn't end there. God does not leave us to our own devices. He set a plan in motion that no scheme or device could stop. When Jesus came to this earth and in John 10, 10, he said, I have come to give life in the full. He meant it. That's why when we walk now as Christians, how are we to walk? We are to walk in confidence. Not arrogance. Confidence. And what does confidence mean? Where did it come from? Confidence comes from confide in Latin, which means with, con. And fide means faith. Confidence, to walk in confidence means to walk in faith. Jesus' death and resurrection means that no matter what the circumstance, no matter what your social circumstances or political circumstances, what your economic circumstances, God can turn that around and he could make it so that it becomes your good, no matter what. That's an incredible statement to really believe and walk in. Do you believe it? Do you walk in that? You know what? You can, because Jesus died and he rose again. The greatest tragedy of our life in this universe is death, being parted from those that you love. And Jesus turned that around so that even death can't thwart God's plan. God can use anything then, any situation that we are going through, no matter if it is economic, political, 
social, no matter what it is, no matter what happens, and he can turn it for your good. That's why we have a reason to be thankful. God has taken away our disgrace because the ultimate disgrace was death, was separation from those that you love. And he takes it away and he's showing us that no matter what situation, no matter who becomes president, it doesn't matter as much as what he will do through that circumstance and change it for your good. So yes, we do have a reason to be thankful. We as Christians have every reason to walk in confidence. Not because we can fix it. We can't. But because we know that God will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. And we thank you that with confide, we can walk in confidence. I pray, God, that you will continue to minister to your people here. That no matter what we go through, that we remember that the one that we are to lean upon are not our own devices and schemes, not our own notions of what's right and wrong, but it is on you. We will trust not in our own understanding, for we are confused by these times, but we will lean upon your wisdom, glean from your truth. We ask God that you would be with each and every single person here as we respond daily with a life of repentance, turning to you for the answer. In Jesus' name I pray.